Thanks, David, Esther, Jen, for leading us in worship. Thanks, Bethany, for coming and sharing with us about the work that the Lord is doing in the Philippines. We are excited to hear and be reminded that the gospel is at work all throughout the world, that God is accomplishing his purpose through his word, and we're excited to see um, what the next year looks like for you as you get to participate in that there. We're excited to be able to continue our summer of missions here at Trinity. and to support missionaries who are doing those same things in the Philippines and in Indonesia as we had the Mann family in just a couple of, uh, of weeks ago. And so uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to prayerfully consider supporting Bethany, to pray for her. Uh, we as a church are going to be supporting her in the next year. Uh, 3% of every budget receipt that we have come in is going to go to support her work in the Philippines. Uh, so your giving to Trinity is, is going to support her and to support the other missionaries um, that we support and sponsor because the gospel matters. The gospel gospel going out to the ends of the earth is the reason that the church exists. It is the reason that we are here, and we want to be a part of that in Crestwood. We want to be a part of that in the Philippines, and so we're grateful for that opportunity. Thank you for coming and sharing with us this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking in the Word this morning at the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3, continuing in our study of the book of Daniel, here at, uh, at Trinity we do a type of teaching called expository teaching. We have a high view of the Bible. We believe it's God's word to us. It reveals God's words to us, and so we want to study it. We want to hear from it. We want to hear not the opinions of me or Pastor Tom or Pastor Dave, but we want to hear God's words. And so we open the Bible. We work through books bit by bit to understand them in the context they were written and then apply them to life. And so right now we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel, Strangers in a Strange Land, looking at the life of Daniel and his friends, these exiles taken from their home in Israel and living in a foreign land where they were strangers in the kingdom of Babylon. And this morning, we're going to look at at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. If you did not get a listening guide on your way in, uh, if you can slip up your hand, Dave is in the back. He'll make sure that you get one of those. It has a copy of the uh, the text this morning, some place to take notes. It'll help you as you follow along in our study today. And as we get into our study this morning, we're asking the question, what does it look like when an unlikely person comes to faith and comes to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you, you sit here this morning and you say, I was an unlikely person once. I was somebody who you wouldn't have thought would end up following the Lord, trusting the Lord, and, and I came to faith. Maybe this morning you know and love a person who would, you would categorize as an unlikely person, wondering, can they come home? Can they be saved? Can they come into the family of God? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a very unlikely person who comes into a saving relationship with the God of heaven, looking at Nebuchadnezzar, Mr. That Escalated Quickly himself. This guy, who this, this king, who has been the main antagonist in the book so far. The one who took Daniel and his friends captive into a foreign land. The one who had this dream that Daniel interpreted for him, uh, where he was threatening to have all of his wise men and advisors executed because they couldn't perform this impossible task. This guy who demanded worship of him and threw everybody who didn't into a fiery furnace. This guy is going to come and have an encounter with the God of heaven that changes him, that transforms him this morning. So this is the first sermon in in what we'll call a three-week mini-series. In chapter 4, we're going to examine Nebuchadnezzar's transformation that we see here. And we're going to see his own testimony of what God does in his life. This week, we're going to look at the introduction. We're going to look at his mission statement for the chapter. 
Next week, we're going to examine another dream that he has and another interpretation that Daniel gives to him, laying out what is to come. And then in the final week, we're going to look at the fulfillment of that dream and the transforming effect that it had on Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar had flirted with faith before. He said some nice things about God when God did some amazing things in front of him in the stories that we looked at over the past few weeks. But this morning, we're going to see that that this time something is different. He had encounters with God. As Tom pointed out to us last week, he never really changed, though. His encounters left him the same person. He quickly forgot what he saw and went back to life as usual. This week, he's transformed. He's changed. And we're going to read this morning in verses 1 through 3 words that it's hard to believe are coming out of this guy's mouth from what we've seen so far. How can this be? How can this ruthless king have been so completely transformed? Well, he's transformed because God is God in heaven. He is God to all peoples, to all nations, to all the earth, and he can change anybody, even King Nebuchadnezzar and even me and you. So let's look this morning at Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and we'll dive into our study. Daniel 4, verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Let's pray as we continue in our study this morning. Our God and Father, as we come and we gather around your word this morning, we ask you, That what we know not, you teach us. What we have not, you give us. What we are not, you make us. By the power of your Spirit, the transforming power that only comes from you. God, we ask these things in the name of your Son and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. So here we are at the beginning of chapter 4, and I hope as we read these first three verses that it's a little bit jarring to read. Because a couple things are happening right here. Number one, we have a change in authorship. Right? We've been reading this book as written by Daniel in the first three chapters. The book's called Daniel. We've been talking about these are Daniel's recollections of his life's experiences living in Babylon. But here in chapter 4, someone else has the pen. And not only does someone else have the pen, but it's the guy who's been the villain of the entire story so far, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages. So Nebuchadnezzar is penning chapter 4. Chapter 4 is his experience, his testimony, his recollection of what God has done entering into his life. And it's drawing not only because we have a change in authorship, but it's drawing because the author seems like a completely different person than the Nebuchadnezzar that we've gotten to know over the first three chapters. He's expressing peace to his citizens. He's talking about what the Most High God has done, how great he is, how eternal is his dominion. Wait wait a minute. What, What happened to this guy? What changed Nebuchadnezzar? What brought about this guy that we're reading in these first three verses of the chapter? Well, we're about to find out what changed Nebuchadnezzar, but we're actually not going to find out in full detail what changed him until the next couple of weeks. 
You see, the first three verses of the chapter here are not chronological, but there's something of an overarching mission statement about the contents of what we're going to read in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar is beginning his his expression of, of what God has done. He's beginning his testimony by telling us the conclusion that he has come to. So he begins with the end. He says, here is the conclusion that I have come to. And then he's going to spend the remainder of this chapter unpacking how he arrived at that conclusion. How he came to understand that God is the most high God whose dominion is forevermore. I want, I want you to think of, if you, if you like watching uh, TV series, and every now and then you'll find an episode of maybe your favorite TV show where you pick up right in the middle of the action. And you don't really know what's going on, but you're right here at this really crucial part of the story. And then maybe after that little intro in the first five minutes, you'll have a title card that'll pop up and say 24 hours earlier. And then you backtrack to figure out how you got to that point in the story. That's kind of the storytelling that's taking place here. We're beginning at this crucial moment of an expression of transformation for Nebuchadnezzar. And then we're going to back up and we're going to find out how we got there. And this conclusion and explanation format isn't unique to to Daniel 4. This isn't the only place that this happens in the Bible. Uh, If you look at Psalm 73, this kind of uses this same method to extol God's great faithfulness, where the psalmist proclaims that God is faithful, and then he backs up to demonstrate how he's come to learn in his own life the faithfulness of God is true. Psalm 73, 1 through 3, uh, here's how it begins. He says, Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. There's his conclusion right up front. God is good to Israel, and he's good to those who are pure in heart. But he continues in verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the psalmist says, I know that God is good to those who trust in him. He's faithful to the pure in heart. But I didn't think that at first. I had almost slipped because I looked at the arrogant, at the wicked, and they seemed to be doing really well. And so this throws the psalmist for a loop, and he spends the remainder of the psalm showing how God taught him about his faithfulness to the righteous, to the pure in heart. He starts with a conclusion, and then he begins to show you how he arrived at that conclusion. That is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing this morning in the first three verses of this chapter. So what we're going to find out is that Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled and transformed by Yahweh, by the God of Israel, who he refers to as the Most High God, in a way that he hasn't been so far. So we're going to see his introduction this week, and then over the next couple weeks, we're going to find out how that happened, how God changed him, what this episode is that finally gets through to Nebuchadnezzar. But this week, we're going to see the result of those changes. And it ends up being really helpful to us because we're going kind of in blind. We see... We saw very clearly last week, here's who Nebuchadnezzar was, here's who he is now, and we get a really good glimpse into the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see this happen. So that leads us to our question this morning, what changes can we observe? What differences do we see in this guy from chapter 3, verse 30 to chapter 4, verse 1? Well, let's start off by asking, what was the Nebuchadnezzar that we know from these first three chapters? What was he like? If we had to paint a picture of this king who ruled over Babylon, how would we describe him to somebody who was maybe coming in blind? Maybe you're listening in this morning, and this is the first sermon in Daniel you've heard. Let's catch you up. What have we learned about this guy so far? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was self-obsessed. He was really all about him, and he was hot-headed, right? 
He was really quick on the trigger to get things escalated from zero to a hundred in the blink of an eye. Right back in chapter two, he has this dream. The dream really troubles him, and he calls his advisors in. He says, I want you to, to interpret my dream for me so that I can understand what the gods are trying to tell me. And not only that, but I want you to tell me my dream and then tell me the interpretation. I'm not even going to give you the dream. And his advisors all say, well, we can't read your mind, king. Nobody can do that. Only the gods can do that. And he says, all right, well, I'm going to have you all executed then. Okay. Chapter 3, what we read last week in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace that Tom explained to us. Nebuchadnezzar has this great image set up representing his power, his influence, his kingdom. Tells everyone to bow down and worship it. And by the way, if you don't, I'm going to throw you into a smelting furnace. Like, this guy has, has no middle ground. He is very much about him, his power, his great majesty and might. And if anyone threatens that or fails to pay him the homage that he thinks he deserves, he has no patience for them. And he's ruthless in his enforcement of his own glory, if you will. So he's obsessed with himself. He's hot-headed. He has no heed to the people who are around him. Even his most trusted, closest advisors, all it takes is one wrong move and you are off with your head. But this week, how does he start his chapter? How does he start chapter 4, verse 1? He proclaims peace to everybody. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Nebuchadnezzar's disposition to those around him has changed. And that's what we're going to start looking at first this morning as we read the confessions of this redeemed pagan in Nebuchadnezzar. And we look at what happens when people who are far from God encounter him in a saving way. The first thing that we see is that redeemed pagans change in their disposition toward other people. When we are transformed by God, It transforms not just the way we relate to God, it transforms the way that we relate to everybody else. Nebuchadnezzar goes from this hot-headed guy obsessed with self with no patience for others when they get in his way to proclaiming peace to everybody, to all the ends of the earth. Now granted, his his greeting he starts off with, this is a pretty standard greeting in in terms of ancient writing and communication, so we we don't want to read too much into it, but I want you to consider what has been his modus operandi so far. What has been his disposition to all peoples, languages, and nations in the story so far? They've been fodder to be conquered. His, the usefulness of other people, of other nations, of other tribes, has all been about what they can do for him. The riches that he can extract from them. The majesty that they can offer him as king and ruler. The way that they can aid in his puffing up of his own ego, of his own kingdom, of his own dominion. Nothing in our journey so far has suggested that Nebuchadnezzar has even the slightest regard for other people. Not a hint of that, so not a hint of that anywhere. Like we said, you could be even in his inner circle, even his most loyal and trusted advisors. Think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego last week. Like These guys were, they're the ones that helped Daniel uh, in saving him from this this dream in chapter 2, giving him the answers that he needed. And then in chapter 3, he turns on them in an instant. And yet here, he find, we find that, that he's expressing peace. He's expressing greetings and joy to the people of his empire. 
When God transforms our hearts in relationship to him, it will always transform the way that we relate to those around us. We have scriptures that, that hammer this point home. I think of 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, where John writes, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now I want you to notice what John suggests to us here. He suggests that our love for God can be tangibly measured by our love for other people. Right? You see that pattern? If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, then he is a liar. In other words, he doesn't really love God. Because how can he love a God who he has not even seen when he can't love his brother who is right here in front of him? This commandment we have, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so when we're looking at somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, a redeemed pagan, someone who's far from God, who gets brought near, one of the things that we should be able to see in their lives is a change in disposition toward other people. How can you tell when God saves someone? They change not just in terms of religiosity, but they change in how they relate to those around them, to the love that they show to the people around them. I don't think our world always grasps this. It's made me think this morning about uh, a TV show called Poldark. I don't know if, if many of you have watched the show Poldark. It's based on a series of, of novels by Winston Graham about life in early 19th century England. Uh, and in the show, there's a character, the, the father-in-law of the main character, uh, Ross Poldark is the main character. His wife, Demelza, comes from poverty, comes from a really rough background, a father who's abusive. Uh, and we meet him in the first season of the show, and he's just really a lousy guy. Um, he's abusive, he's harsh, he's controlling, he's manipulating. But I think it's near the end of season one or the beginning of season two, uh, Mr. Karn is his name, he meets Jesus. He finds religion and he transforms into this fire and brimstone street preacher who's out there trying to save everybody. But it's interesting if you watch the show, we see a transformation in this guy, but it's all about religiosity. He's still the same cold-hearted, you know, uh, short-tempered. He's not abounding in love. We don't see his personality change. We just see he goes from a, a cold-hearted, non-religious guy to now he's a cold-hearted religious guy. And he's out, you know, pounding people over the head with his Bible and, and telling everybody to repent uh, and, and to turn away or they're going to burn forever. He, we see no love and compassion in him. I think the world, when we talk about being transformed by Christ, I think that's what people sometimes expect is well, when you talk about a transformation, you just want people to get religious and get in church and start saying the right things. The picture that we have here through Nebuchadnezzar is not just somebody who found the right religion. It's a picture of somebody who meets the living God, and it transforms him into someone who has love and compassion on those who are around him. Simply getting religious is not the solution that we're looking for. We need to see God at work transforming a heart. And so, let's ask the first question this morning. If we measure our love for God tangibly by our love for other people, how are you measuring up this morning? Do you look like someone who has been redeemed like Nebuchadnezzar here? Are you an ambassador of peace? Or is your patience and love for those around you defined by how useful they are to you. Right? That's where Nebuchadnezzar started. 
the way that he expressed himself towards others was directly related to what they could do for him. Were they helpful? If you were being helpful to Nebuchadnezzar, great. You got the good seat at the table. The minute you crossed him or didn't give him what he wanted, you're out. Is that the way that we respond to others around us? Or are we proclaiming peace to all peoples, all nations, all languages? Has God changed your disposition toward others? The easy ones to love and the difficult ones as well. Redeemed pagans change their disposition toward other people. That's not all. The second thing that they do in verse 2 is redeemed pagans proclaim God's works. This is Nebuchadnezzar telling us why he's writing. What is the point of him taking the pen for a chapter here in Daniel? Verse 2, he says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Why is he writing? Because he needs to tell people about what God has done. He needs to tell people about what God has done in his life. He has to proclaim the works of God, the amazing things that he has done for me. And so as readers of Daniel, as people who have been following the story so far, we're probably wondering, what is this? What what sign and wonder is he going to talk about? Because let's be honest, he's seen some amazing stuff so far, right? I mean, think about what Nebuchadnezzar has been privy to. He had a man tell him what he dreamed and then explain how that dream foretold the future. That's kind of a big deal. I've never had that happen. He watched God saved three men from being thrown into a smelting furnace and they walked out without even a missing eyebrow. That's incredible. That's an amazing sign, an amazing wonder. Maybe that's what he's going to tell us about here. But no, he's not going to recount either of those stories. Those aren't the signs and wonders that he talks about in in verse 2 here. He's going to tell us a new tale. He's going to tell us a new story that we haven't even seen yet. This encounter is going to change him away, change him in a way that even those other encounters couldn't. Think about that. Nebuchadnezzar has seen some amazing things, some miraculous things, awesome displays of the power of God. Those didn't change him. We're about to see what did. It's setting the table for what is to come. This proclamation is about what God has done for him. What the Most High God has done for me. He's been an observer of God's works for a while now. Now he's a target of God's works. Now God is lasering in on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And what we're going to see, again, I don't want to get too much into spoiler territory because we're going to cover this in detail the next couple weeks, but he's going to end up getting humbled. Nebuchadnezzar has been a very proud individual, a grand, majestic ruler. God is going to humble him to the dirt. Nebuchadnezzar is about to finally learn the most important lesson that anyone can learn, that God is God and he is not. That is what prompts him finally to proclaim the works of God here. Once this happens, once he has that encounter with God, he has to tell the world. It seems good to him to show these signs and these wonders. God's redeeming grace is intended to prompt us, to bring us, to praise him. God intervenes in our lives to prompt a response from us. 
And we've seen that pattern already here in the book of Daniel. Think back to Daniel 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, when he he threatened death to all his wise men and advisors if if someone could not interpret the dream for him. And what does Daniel say? He says, hey, we'll, we'll take care of it. We'll get you the interpretation. And he comes back to his friends and he tells them, let's pray, let's seek mercy from God that we could reveal this thing to the king. And God shows up in a dream that night and he gives Daniel a vision and gives him the dream that the king had and the interpretation for it. And we talked about during that, that study that our first instinct when God comes through like that is to say, man, this is fantastic. Now on to the next thing. We would have run right into the king's presence. But what did Daniel do? He paused and he overflowed in praise to God. He expressed God's glory, his majesty, and thanksgiving and praise. We're seeing the same thing from Nebuchadnezzar here. That when God breaks into somebody's heart, it, the natural result is an explosion of praise to him. We have to tell of his great works. Psalm 30, verses 11 through 12, the psalmist says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the biblical pattern. When God transforms someone, we respond in praise and thanksgiving. We can't hold it in. It's going to burst out from us. This is what happens when redeemed pagans are redeemed by God, when people encounter the Lord. I want to share with you a few quotes from people throughout the history of the church on this topic that I think really help to bring this home. The first is from Martin Luther, the uh, the, uh, 14th century reformer. Uh, who said, if he have faith, the believer cannot be restrained. He betrays himself. He breaks out. He confesses and teaches the gospel to the people at the risk of life itself. Luther says, when, when the believer has faith, faith can't be bottled up. Faith breaks out. It, it comes out. You can't restrain him. Think, uh, think Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. It breaks free. That's what faith does. Faith finds a way. It breaks free. It can't be contained. That's the idea here is that when we are changed and transformed by God, it breaks out. It comes out of us. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great preacher and theologian, put it this way. He said, a Christian spirit disposes a person to be public-spirited. A man of a right spirit is not a narrow private spirit, but is greatly concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the town where he dwells. So Edward says, if someone has has a Christian spirit, if they've been transformed by God, they're not concerned just with themselves. They're concerned with the people around them, the town where they live, the community they're involved in. They want people to know the God that they know. Charles Spurgeon the, the prince of preachers, the English preacher, said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Those are your options. We all are, are either someone who proclaims the goodness of God or God really has not gotten a hold of this. Now, this doesn't mean you go to the, when we say missionary, doesn't mean you're going to the Philippines like Bethany is, but it means your faith expresses itself outwardly because God has transformed you. And then the last quote, is from a character by the name of Billy Bray. 
Now, this is a really interesting guy. You ever want to have a fun couple hours in the afternoon, go home, Google search Billy Bray. Uh, we talked about Poldark earlier. Billy Bray is like a character right out of Poldark. So he lived in England in the early 19th century. He lived in Cornwall, England, where that show takes place. He was a tin miner, just like the characters in that show. Uh, and so Billy Bray, was he was a pretty rough and tumble character. And he was a drunk. He worked in these tin mines. Uh, and by his own admission, he was a pretty lousy individual. And there was an accident in the mine that he worked uh, in which he nearly lost his life. God spared him through, it, through that accident and used that accident to get a hold of his heart and to convince him of, of the gospel. He had people share the gospel with him. And Billy Bray, this, this drunk tin miner, became converted. And once God got a hold of him, he was one of the most interesting personalities you're ever going to read about. This guy was boisterous. He was loud. The same Billy Bray who was the loud, boisterous drunk became Billy Bray, the loud, boisterous preacher. He always had a word. They called him God's man with a shout. He wasn't a quiet guy. He rubbed a lot of Christians back then the wrong way in, in England because, you know, a Christian is supposed to be a fine, dignified gentleman who was always, you know, in fine society. Billy Bray wasn't nothing about fine society. He was loud. One of his most memorable quotes as he talked about the fact, this idea that, that because God changed him, he couldn't keep it inside. He says, there's nothing that anybody can do to shut me up. Here's the quote. He says, if they were to put me in a barrel, I'd cry glory out the bunghole. Like, there is nothing that anybody in English society could do to shut up Billy Bray. When we are redeemed and transformed by God, it will seem good to us to tell of his marvelous works in our lives just like Nebuchadnezzar here. So if you've been transformed by God this morning, does anyone know? Can anyone tell? Have you begun, like Nebuchadnezzar, to declare the works of the Most High God? Now, we got to stop with this one because it, it can be easy to confuse this idea of, of telling people, of, of expressing and extolling God's works. It can be easy to confuse that with personality type, right? Because some of us, some of us are like Billy Bray, and we're naturally loud and boisterous, and the whole world knows when we walk into a room. And some of us are really quiet, and we don't say a whole lot. When we talk about this transformation, this doesn't mean that if you're an introvert and you encounter God, he turns you into an extrovert. There are plenty of people, plenty of people among us here, who are quiet, who are introverted, and who are not naturally going to go out and shout glory out the bunghole when God transforms our life. When we look at a person like that, and when a person like that hears this message, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you think, gosh, I must be a total failure as a Christian. Am, am I even saved because I'm not out, you know, shouting it from the rooftops? Well, no, that, that's not what we're talking about here. You don't have to change your personality necessarily when God gets a hold of you. You don't have to become an extrovert if you're an introvert. But you do have to exude gratitude in some way, right? Some people shout it from the rooftops. But you've been around, I know you could probably call up examples in your mind of really quiet, humble-spirited people who when you're around them, you just, they, they ooze God's glory. You know that they have been in, they've encountered and been changed by him. So don't confuse this with a personality type. But ask the question, do you extol God's works in the way that you speak and in the way that you live? Think about it this way. Think about musical instruments, right? A trumpet. A trumpet is loud and brass and brash. There's no mistaking a trumpet. If somebody were to get up this morning, join the worship team, and break out a trumpet, lack of amplification would not be an issue in here. You would know the trumpets in the room, right? 
But then think about a flute. Christiana's played the flute with the worship team. Flutes are quiet. They're, They're light. They're airy. It's a different kind of tone that comes out from a flute. Both a trumpet and a flute are musical instruments. You're not going to say to a flute, well, that, that flute's not a musical instrument because it's not a trumpet. It's not the same as a trumpet, so therefore it's not a musical instrument. We, that's not the case. Some instruments are different than others. Maybe you're a trumpet this morning. Maybe you're a flute. Either way, you can use those things as instruments to make music. Nobody is telling you if you're a flute this morning that you need to be a trumpet if you're going to be a Christian. But if you look at those instruments, if you have a flute that's rusted, None of the keys work and it doesn't make any sound. Well, then you'd say it's not a functioning musical instrument. Nobody's telling you that you've got to change from a flute to a trumpet. But if you're a flute, be a functioning flute. Be a flute that expresses glory and honor to God. Whatever personality type you are, the Lord will repurpose your personality to be a part of his mission. He has gifted you in unique ways and given you unique opportunities to tell the world who he is and what he's done in your life. So redeemed pagans, they change in their disposition toward others. They proclaim God's works. And then finally in verse 3, they realize that God is holy. So what we're about to find out is that Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, the greatest king in all the world, has been humbled. Why has he been humbled? Well, again, not going to get in too deep in spoiler territory. But he ultimately has been humbled because he's met a king greater than himself. He has met a force that he cannot reckon with, that he cannot overcome. This is the core of his proclamation here in verse 3. He says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. His kingdom is everlasting. And his dominion endures forever. He realizes that God and only God is the eternal king. And no one can contend with him. In essence, he realizes that God is holy. Now maybe that sounds odd to you because we tend to think about holiness in the sense, in the category of moral purity. And it certainly is that. But there's more to holiness than simple moral purity purity. The word holy at its core means to be set apart. So when we talk about God as holy, it highlights the fact that God is altogether other than us. He is not like us. We are not like him. He is different. He is set apart. He is set apart in his power, in his majesty, in his eternality, and in his moral purity. That's why we tend to to highlight moral purity when we talk about God's holiness, because maybe more than any other area, that is where such a stark contrast enters between God and his goodness and us in our sinfulness. So that's why we focus on moral purity when we talk about holiness and being set apart ourselves as Christians, that we have been set apart in Christ for good works, to be like God in his holiness. We want to emulate him. But God is also other from us in terms of his eternality. And where that hits Nebuchadnezzar is, Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. I'm not speaking here in terms of you know, how we would evaluate him from a moral standpoint, but in terms of majesty and dominion and glory, this guy did it all. He was a conqueror. He had built a magnificent empire. He had conquered not just small nations, but great nations. Assyria crumbled before him. 
He busted down the front door of Egypt. Like, these are no minor league empires that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered. This is not like in college football when Alabama beats up on Southwest Missouri Tech State A&M. Like, he's, not in the, in, he's not in his championship position because he played a weak schedule. This guy conquered superpowers. This guy had an empire at his doorstep. And next week, we're going to see that the story is going to kind of kick in with, with him looking at his empire and saying, look at what I've done. I am awesome. And now he's about, to enc- he's about to encounter someone that he has to reckon with, that he can't reckon with. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar fancied himself on level with the gods. Remember his taunt last week to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as Tom unpacked that story for us? When he told them, if you don't bow down and worship me, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel 3, verse 15, he says, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar says, You got a God who can contend with me? Bring it on. He's the great king above all kings. He fancies himself on a level with the gods. But in that episode... And even more personally in the episode we're going to see here in just the next couple weeks, he finds a force he cannot move. There was a God who was able to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of his hands. And there is a God who can step in this week in the midst of his pride and crush him. That is what transforms Nebuchadnezzar. That's what ultimately takes him from being just a pagan to being a redeemed pagan. It's a realization of the greatness and the holiness of God and submitting to him in faith. He had heard of God in chapter 2. He'd seen God's works in chapter 3. Now he comes face to face with him in all his terrible splendor in chapter 4. And he realizes his own place on the totem pole in comparison to this most high God. Which prompts the question, when you think about God, what what comes into your mind? What kind of thoughts are formed when you think about God? Uh, Pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What kind of concept do you have about God? Because we live in a culture where most people believe in God, and yet most people haven't been transformed like this. So what gives? Well, the the God that most people in our culture have encountered is not this God, is not Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the most high God. The concept that we have of God can very easily be a very small God, someone that can fit in our back pocket that we can pull out when needed and ignore when we don't. So what is God to you? What do you think about when you think of God? Is God a silly farce? Is he a manufactured concept for weak people who can't face the cold, hard universe on their own? The crutch for the weak, if you will? Is that what you think of when you think of God? Maybe you think of God as a a triviality, a cosmic Santa Claus who gives you cool stuff. Maybe he's a good luck trinket to be trotted out when you need a stroke of good fortune. Or maybe you think of God in personal terms, but but he's very near to you in terms of being a lot like you. Do you think of God as the big guy, the man upstairs, some other quaint description that places him in a category that's much closer to your good buddy than anyone else? 
What kind of thoughts do you have when you think about God? Or is God the holy creator of the universe? The one who you fall silent in awe before. When you think of God, do you think of the everlasting king who rules over everything? The one who made galaxies out of nothing using just words. Do you think of that God when you think of God? That's the God that Nebuchadnezzar encountered. That's the God that changed him. That's the God that Job encountered. If we remember the story of Job, in Job chapter 40, after God shows up and tells Job, where were you when I made the world from nothing, when I formed all of these amazing things? Job 40, verse 3, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be transformed because he meets a God who is so far out there that he can't fit him in his back pocket. He can't break through him to get what he wants. That is the God who transforms lives. That is the God who can visit Nebuchadnezzar. And when the the interpreted dream of chapter 2 doesn't change him, And the miracle he sees in chapter 3 doesn't change him. The face-to-face hard encounter that he has in chapter 4 can transform his life. Does God unsettle you? Does he ever make you uncomfortable? When you think about God, do you think about someone who is other, who is bigger, who is beyond your capacity to reason? Is God safe? That's going to ultimately dictate the way you respond to God. It's the way that you think about him. If God doesn't unsettle you, he'll never really comfort you. If God isn't big enough to rock you out of your seat, then he'll never be big enough to overcome all of the things in this life that are going to rock you, that are going to push you back and forth. Until God is an immovable object that you cannot move around to suit your own tastes, You'll never see him as a refuge under which you can take strong support. You must be unsettled by God until you can be comforted by him. Have you realized the awesome holiness of God? And have you come to the limits of your own power? If you have, then you're ready to be transformed. You're ready to be in the position that Nebuchadnezzar finds himself as we close verse 3, and it begins to tell the story. Nebuchadnezzar gets up. He's going to have his testimony. He's going to have church over the next couple weeks. But we see in the beginning that we worship a God who doesn't just transform good Israelite young men like David or like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He transforms pagan kings. He transforms unlikely converts in an instant. Because he is the most high God, the great king above all gods. And we talked earlier as we started this morning about unlikely converts. Maybe you think you were one. Maybe you know somebody today. You're praying for somebody today who feels a lot like one. But let's, let's just go ahead and be honest. None of us have any business being here. If we think of ourselves as likely converts, then we're completely missing the boat. 
we are all desperately fallen. We are all in just as desperate need of grace and redemption as Nebuchadnezzar is here. Probably my favorite preacher to listen to, Alistair Begg, said this. told his congregation, he said, if you, know me, if you knew me the way that God knows me, you'd never want to talk to me again, much less listen to me preach. Just because I stand up here behind one of these things doesn't mean that I'm, I'm on a plane that puts me close to God. All of us are in desperate need of grace. All of us are pagans in need of redemption. And we're going to see in the next couple weeks how God demonstrated his holiness to Nebuchadnezzar, how he brought, the, brought him to that breaking point. But I want to say to you this morning, God has demonstrated his holiness to us in an even greater way. He's demonstrated how different he is from us. But to us, he did it by becoming like us. God entered into his world. He became a man, the man Jesus Christ. And he lived a life of absolute perfection. Perfect resistance of the evil impulses that torment us. Perfect obedience. Perfect goodness of heart. Perfect love toward his neighbors and his enemies alike. As God became like us in his humanity in Jesus Christ, he showed how unlike us he is. When we look at Christ, when we see an unattainable standard, we, like Nebuchadnezzar, come face to face with the holiness of God. And Christ, in that absolute perfection, willingly took our disastrous wickedness onto his own account. He died an agonizing death, and then he walked out of his grave three days later, triumphant over sin and death and hell. And today we are invited, you are invited, come face to face with that reality. Take a hard look at Calvary's cross. Take a hard look at an empty tomb, at a grave that had a body in it, and now it doesn't. And see the holiness of God. See something truly other, something alien, something holy, something you cannot move around to suit your own needs, something that bids you come and be transformed. Come and participate freely. Come and know new life. That's the wonder of the message that we've seen. Nebuchadnezzar runs headlong into a brick wall that he cannot overcome. We come to that point. We come and run headlong into the brick wall of Jesus Christ, of his perfect life, of his perfect grace. And we see not just that brick wall, but we see an invitation, a hand reaching down, pulling us up giving us grace, inviting us. Don't just come and fall down and worship, but come and be a brother, a son, an heir of the kingdom. When you see that Christ, when you see grace as that spectacular, and you're transformed by it, it will seem good to you to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done, that he's done for you, that he's done for me, that he's done for us. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. You will not outlive it. You will not outconquer him. Your empire will crumble and fall. His remains, his is eternal. And once you're broken of the foolish notion that you can contend against God, that you can triumph over his kingdom, 
once he breaks you of that, he freely invites you to take up residence in his kingdom, to come in, to find a refuge, to find the rock that you stumbled over is now the home that you take shelter under. That is the wonder of Christ. He invites you into his kingdom, not as a slave or as a serf or even merely as a citizen, but as an heir of the fullness of his glorious riches. That transforms a life. And so this morning, as we read about Nebuchadnezzar, as we set the stage for the story of his transformation, I invite you this morning, be transformed. Come to Jesus. Come and meet this one who shows grace beyond your wildest dreams and find a home with him among his people forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And if you are in Christ this morning, rejoice and remember the only reason you sit here, the only reason you belong in the family of God is because of his grace. Not because you were a more likely convert than Nebuchadnezzar, not because of your pedigree, your family, your religiosity, your goodness, because of God's grace. When we come to that realization, then we're going to be free to love others. Then we're going to be free to proclaim God's works. And we're going to see and be transformed day by day by his holiness. Pray with me. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are a God who can, who can handle us, who can transform us. Nothing we bring to you is too significant. No past, no pain, no baggage, no guilt is too much for you to deal with. And as we read about Nebuchadnezzar, as we read this stark introduction to a changed life, God, may you remind us, those of us who are in Christ, that it is only that kind of radical grace that has saved us. That we are dependent on you for each and every breath, for our hope and our future. God, I pray that if there are any here who have not been transformed by you, that you would humble them, that you would show them who you are, your greatness, your majesty, your power, your dominion, and your great love for them through Christ Jesus, your Son. God, we praise you. We fall silent before you. And we ask that as we go through the rest of this day, the rest of this week, that you would help us to lead transformed lives. That we would change the way we we encounter others. That we would be ambassadors of your peace, of your reconciliation that you would break us of seeing others' value in terms of what they can do for us. God, I pray that you would make us instruments of your praise, that we would extol your works, Father, whether as a trumpet or a flute. May you repurpose us into your people for your mission. And God, day by day, remind us of your holiness. Remind us of our need of grace and of your great generous bounty to provide grace for us day after day after day, moment by moment, because it was purchased once for all by the work of your Son. God, may we celebrate that. May we glory in it. And may we bring you glory in all that we do and say. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.